this week a lady called uh, Carol Saldanak, a 51-year-old mother with adult sons, uh, told the BBC how it was that she turned her two violent sons into the police. They'd committed a a shocking assault on an innocent man and and, uh, when she found out about it, though she'd been sworn to secrecy, she concluded she could not keep quiet. I don't know whether you saw it. She wept as she spoke. It was very moving. She said some inconsistent things as she reflected on it. She said, I hope they will forgive me. Actually, there's nothing to forgive. They brought the trouble on themselves. I had to do it. And uh, at the moment, she's estranged from her sons as they languish in prison. She's enduring what may well be a permanently broken family. But deeply painful though that reality was, she was absolutely clear in the interview, she had done the right thing. Her dilemma is God's dilemma. In our world today, there are actually plenty of people who would say that Carol Saldanak was wrong. You don't grass up your own kids. Love requires that you forgive them and protect them at all times. There are plenty of people in our world today (coughs) who say that about God as well. Who say that God would of course be wrong to bring anyone to judgment. If God is love, how could anyone be condemned by God? But uh, Ms. Saldanak's short interview, I think, shows how facile those arguments are, how wrong. We are called to deeper, wider commitments than protecting our kids. Indeed, if we have simply a narrow commitment to protecting our children, we discover actually we don't protect them at all. Actually, if every family unit just had as its only ideal to look after itself, you would not have national harmony. You would have, in fact, a nation torn apart by family feuds. shot through with deep and terrible injustices. And if God, actually, is only a God who forgives, is only, if, if his love is only about tolerating sin, if his patience actually never ever runs out, actually God himself would not be a perfect God at all. He would actually be a monster concealing behind a sort of benignly smiling face a dark and terrible indifference to sin and suffering and wickedness. He would not actually be a loving father. In reality, if he never ever judged sin and evil, he would be a heartless fiend. But Saldanak summed it up perfectly. She said, If I didn't say anything, 
then I'd be as guilty as what they are. If I didn't say anything, I'd be as guilty as what they are. And what she knew about herself, God knows as well. If he doesn't say anything, as our world wallows in sin and darkness, then he would be as guilty as we are. So God has plenty to say. He does have something he's to say. He actually has something deeply uncomfortable to say and a large part of me frankly wishes that I I never had to mention it in fact that it didn't exist because I would like a lot of the time to be honest to believe in a sort of fairy tale which said surely a God of love never judges anyone but it is only a fairy tale that. In a real world it just doesn't work. Sometimes a family tragedy exposes that. Sometimes it's something else. But we must take seriously this morning the reality that God is a God of justice. Indeed, he must be to be a perfect God. We've been studying, haven't we, these last 11 chapters of Isaiah. And last week I described the whole book of Isaiah as being like like a great symphony. It has themes and motifs which come and go and build towards this uh, great climax in these final chapters. We saw, uh, we've seen over the last few weeks that Isaiah 60 to 62 in particular is... Is, is full of blazing glory. In chapter 60, God promised to shed his light into our hearts. Arise, shine, he says, your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. In chapter 61, Jesus speaks. Um, remember, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, he says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. In chapter 62, God speaks again, assuring that he is going to, uh, going to, to, to keep going in his commitment to shine his light on his people, to bind up the brokenhearted, to uh, uh, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. For Zion's sake, he says, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem, I will not remain quiet. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. They were extraordinary chapters describing God's love and commitment to his people, to human beings. God is determined to bring people into an eternal, joyful, satisfied, loving relationship with him. His heartbeat is, is passionate, determined, blazing love. But there was another thing Another motif that has gone on through the whole of Isaiah. It's been like, like, like rumbles of thunder which had not stopped and do not, does not stop in Isaiah 56 to 66. We, we uh, saw just a little bit of it in chapters 56 to 59 a few weeks ago. It's this theme of God's justice of God's judgment, of God's anger, 
even. God's wrath against sin and sinful people. Actually, that theme sandwiches that great central section of 60 to 62. God's righteous anger is there before and after that central section about God's loving commitment. God's dilemma is the Carol Saldanac dilemma writ large over the whole universe. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm passionate about you. But look at what you've done. Isaiah 63 uses incredibly shocking imagery to get this home to us and we must look at that as we, first of all, get into our minds then that alongside coexisting with this passionate, committed love of God that we've seen in 60 to 62 is passionate, committed justice of God. Who is this, verse 1 of 63, coming from Edom, from Bosma, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendour, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, replies God, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like that one, those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. We are meant to recoil at those verses. In Isaiah's day they pressed grapes by... Uh, by um, jumping in the vat and, uh, and uh, <coughs> trampling them so that you're covered in head to foot, uh, from head to foot in, in grape juice. God is stained like that, but not with grape juice, with some much more sinister red fluid, blood. Is God really like some medieval knight emerging from the battle with the blood-soaked sword and clothing? Well, yes, says the Bible. That is not his only characteristic. But his righteousness drives him to anger and justice. We must mean no doubt that is not just some crude Old Testament picture of God. Revelation 19, for instance, in the New Testament, uses just this passage to describe Jesus. Jesus never was gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus spoke of judgment more than anything else. We must be clear that this is not a form of justice which is achievable on earth, still less achievable by someone else on God's behalf. No one on the earth can achieve it. Verse 5, I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. Tony Blair discovered it's not that easy to give God a helping hand, didn't he? The appalling truth is that Justice is not achievable in this world by uh, fallen people like us. Indeed, justice is not 
fully achievable in this world now, but even by God. God himself only uh, approximates towards justice in this world. He does bring down tyrants. He does raise up the meek. He does care for his people, but it is not complete. It is not perfect yet. And in real life there are sometimes some ghastly injustices which still remain in this world. But God is determined they will not last forever. He will not stop until everything, everything is sorted out with justice. He is not confined as we are and our perspective is by even death. But he will work out his justice beyond death. And it will be complete. This is the God who never lets a single sin go unnoticed or undealt with. What does that mean in practice? Well, Isaiah 63 and 64 plots that out for us um, uh, from the history of the nation of Israel. Isaiah describes what this picture of God has meant for God's people. It is the unfolding story of God's love and God's justice. First of all, he reminds us again, God is a God of kindness. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, verse 7 of chapter 63, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and his many kindness. God, God, is, God is a a massively kind God. Supremely, he showed his kindness to Israel in liberating them from slavery in Egypt many years before. Verse 9, In all their distress, he too was distressed. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of, uh, of old. This is the love that they as Israel, the nation, had known from God. He heard their cry of distress. He rescued them. He delivered them. He brought them into the promised land. He gave them food to eat. He protected them from their enemies. He dwelt in their midst so that they could, they, they, they could enjoy him. God had showered his love on those people. But what have they done? That's the stark truth, verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. Yes, he is the God whose very essence is love but he's the God who is absolutely committed to justice too. 
And even his people cannot escape that. So he turned and became their enemy. That's what had happened to Israel as they rebelled against him. That's what they had seen in their lives. They had seen themselves lose everything because of their stupid, foolish rebellion. God's love did not mean that he always turned a blind eye to their rebellion. Like Miss Saldanak, she knew, that he knew, as she knew, that love does not mean you can always protect your offspring from the consequences of their actions. So Israel found themselves in exile, longing for God to come again. Verse 11, Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit amongst them? Or verse 15, God, look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us? Or chapter 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The mountains would tremble before you. This is not just a portrait of Israel. You see, the story of Israel in the Old Testament is a story which is actually about all mankind. It's actually a story about you and I. Our story is the same. Our story is the story of God showing enormous kindness to us. Apostle Paul makes it plain when he's talking to uh, a group of uh, pagans in Lystra in Acts 14. He says, He, God, has not left himself without testimony. He's shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Those of us who were camping this week and felt the rain from heaven, we may not have thought it was God's kindness to us, but it is. We need the provision of rain and sunshine and God gives it. God has filled this world with witness to his kindness and his goodness to us. He showed that to Israel in delivering them. He shows that to all of us in that same way. And make no mistake about it, we ourselves, like Israel, have rebelled against God. We are not innocents. We ignore him every day of our lives. Some of us have spent uh, periods of our life, perhaps even now, right up to now, living without taking him seriously at all, without seriously considering what he wants from our lives, what he made us for. And God deals with us as he deals with Israel. He says, therefore they cannot be in my presence. Therefore they cannot enjoy my protection. Therefore I must 
put them away from me because my justice demands it. My love does not automatically cover up my justice. And as uh, Isaiah reflects on this truth that Israel has seen in their own national life, there are hints of um, hopelessness that start to, uh, to come in in chapter 64. Look at verse 5, for instance. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but we continued to sin against them and you were angry. How then can we be saved? That's the problem. How can we be saved? When we look into our hearts and when we look at the character of God, how can we be saved? Isaiah knew, actually, even the good things that he tried to do, even, even those, those, those good things in his life, and we all have those, even those were tainted, he says. Verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Even our best actions are like filthy rags. Because they are tainted. Because they have imperfections shot through. I do a nice thing for a person, but actually in my heart it's just so that I'll make them like me. Or so that I can manipulate them to give me something else that I want. Or so that I will feel um, narrowly proud of myself. What a wonderful person I am. Even our best actions, God sees right through. And He is the perfect God. He is the, he, he, he is the God who can stand no imperfection. He is the God who is perfectly just. He is determined, passionate. He will not endure sin of any kind. How then can we be saved, says Isaiah. Through these verses as well, though, alongside those, those tinges of hopelessness, there is still a lingering hope. Verse 8 of 64, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, do not remember our sins forever. Look upon us as we pray, for we are all your people. God calls himself our Father. Fathers don't just condemn, do they, says Isaiah? No, they don't. What will this Father do then, torn between infinite love and infinite justice between a determination to love and a determination to fulfil his justice. Frankly, it's amazing to me 
But Isaiah stops at this point. He doesn't, for the rest of his book, offer a complete or satisfying answer. That question just lingers there, just hangs there. And it's, it's amazing to me in particular because Isaiah is the prophet in the Old Testament who has already seen the answer with greater clarity than any other prophet. And yet somehow Isaiah himself doesn't seem to have fitted it together. Isaiah himself seems to be coming to the end um, of uh, his prophecy here with questions still lingering. You are the God of love. You are the God of justice. How then can we be saved? You are our Father. How are you going to do it? It's the New Testament which puts it together. It's the New Testament which points us back to that earlier vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant dies for the sins of God's people. Where the suffering servant pays for God's justice, satisfies God's justice. But he does it as the one who is like God, the one who is sent from God. The one who in doing that is expressing God's love. So the love of God and the justice of God come together in the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross. Let me, let, let, let me tell you a story to try to <clears throat> impress this on, uh, on your minds as to how it is that God can both be the fiercely just God and the fiercely loving God. A magistrate had two sons. One was a, a wild, living, dissolute fool and one day, in a drunken brawl, he killed a man. The community was small, there was no other judge, so the son had to appear before his own father. And with a heavy heart, the uh, judge condemned his wayward son to long years of imprisonment. And every day that judge went to see his son in prison. And every day in prison the son grew weaker and weaker and more and more desperate. And every day that father who loved his son wept for him. Every day it became clearer and clearer. The son wasn't going to make it. He was going to die in that prison. One day the other son came to see his father 
and together they formed a plan. A judge went to his own court, took an ancient book out of the library and showed the court a long forgotten law. A willing brother can pay for his sibling's sin. The bad son, weakened as he was by drink and drugs, was not going to survive. But the good son was strong. The good son could endure the sentence. And one day then, the family would be reunited. So that day, the father and son walked to prison. They embraced, they kissed, they wept. And the guards took the heavy irons off the wrists of and ankles of the, the dissolute son and placed them on the wrists and ankles of Jesus. Each member of that family took a last moment together and as they did so there was nothing but love and joy shared between them because they knew together that they would once again be reunited. And this time there would be no debt to pay. Only a life of joy. They embraced. And the father said, Let it happen. That's what God did. His son Jesus. was qualified to take on our punishment because he became a human being. He had a strength and a capacity to endure that punishment though it led to his death because he was the sinless son of God. And so he broke, he took that sin, he broke the power of Uh, condemnation and death that hung on us and that on our own would mean we would not survive. We would have to be eternally separated from God. And now we live with the reality that we are free now and one day we will be reunited, father and son and adopted sons and daughters with no price to pay. I want to say to you this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, 
Can you see how desperately important the decision uh, that you have to make is? God is not just a cuddly uncle. He is an awesome judge. Your life and mine will be found wanting because of his, the perfection of his justice. The Bible makes that absolutely clear again and again and again. Even our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. They are stained before his glorious perfection and we cannot do anything about it. Yours and my only hope is the forgiveness that is found in Jesus' death on the cross. Don't trust anything else. Your best efforts to make yourself good will never satisfy this God of burning justice. But this God of burning justice has made a way for you. And all he asks is that you come to him and ask for the forgiveness that Christ has won and then you humbly follow him. Yes, it will cost you everything. It will cost your whole life. Everything that you have and are must be given over to God. But that will be joy. That will be freedom. That will be liberation because you no longer have condemnation hanging over your head. After all, how could we give anything less than our whole selves when God the Son gave him his whole self for us? Come to this God. There is no other hope in eternity. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then live in awe of this extraordinary, fierce, just, righteous, majestic God. How terrifying it is to step out of the protection of this God into his wrath. How foolish it is to play games with sin. How blind to think that your salvation is just some peripheral, superficial, bland thing. Oh yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm getting on with life. God has placed you in the eye of a raging hurricane of justice and love. He has given himself for you to save you. You are the, the recipient of the most extraordinary gift that could ever be imagined. God paid for your sins. Live in the light of that. Give your life to that God. Let nothing get in the way of serving that God and rejoicing in that God and loving that God. And when you sin and when you slip and when you fail and when you forget him and he brings that to mind and he shows you, come back to him again and again and again on your knees and say, please Lord forgive me, I know you can, I know you will because Jesus died on the cross for me. Live lives of passion. For this passion of God.
And let that make a difference. Not just now, but tomorrow when you go to work. When you live with the family. When you go and see your friends. Especially when you spend time with your non-Christian friends. Let the reality of this God fill every part of your heart and mind and life. And never, ever forget the love of God is an extraordinary thing because it is mixed with the justice of God. Selden acts boys Maybe they just thought, oh, mum's a pushover. Doesn't matter that she knows the dreadful thing that we've done. She loves us. But she knew different. She knew her commitment to them was deeper and broader than just a commitment to cover up. She had to speak. God must speak. Woe betide us if we are not forgiven people this morning.